You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey, fan people. It's your host, Aaron Roverman, reminding you that this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. And the thing I love about comics are the crossovers. You know, those intercompany crossovers, DC versus Marvel, Batman versus Spider-Man, Spawn versus Daredevil. I mean, really, the sky's the limit. But I miss them. They don't happen so much anymore. But on the retail side, Harry Tarantula has a crossover on its own. You can go there for your comics fix and your cryptocurrency because they now sell Bitcoin. So you can get Batman and Bitcoin. It's pretty great, especially when people like uh, City Councilor Norm Kelly are talking about maybe paying your taxes in Toronto, your parking tickets, those sorts of things with Bitcoin. Now, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, it's a decentralized currency. Leon can tell you all about it. As he says, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. So go over there, get your comics, get your cryptocurrency, get your Batman, get your Bitcoin, and tell Leon that Aaron sent you. This episode of Speech Bubble is dedicated to the memory of Steve Ditko. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at Never Sleeps Network.com. Follow us on social media at Speech Bubble pod and don't forget to subscribe on all your favorite pod catchers with me today is cecil castellucci she is a true renaissance woman our current listeners will know her current work with uh, shade the changing girl which then eventually became shade the changing woman she also does soupy leaves home for dark horse she's been nominated for an eisner in 2018 for her short story ethel Byrne inside mine an anthology benefiting Planned Parenthood. But in addition to her comics work, she's also been a punk rocker with Nerdy Girl and Cecil Seaskull. She's an opera librettist. She's actually, as we're recording this, it's the Toronto Comic Art Festival weekend, and she has an opera called Hockey Noir at the St. Lawrence Arts Centre that is basically being performed today, Friday, May 11th, and initially premiered in Montreal. She also does a lot of young adult novels, so all of her work crosses genres, and she's extremely creative. We're so happy to have her. Welcome, Cecil. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's it's so amazing to have you because, you know, like I said, your, your work crosses so many different genres, but one of the things that I noticed, particularly in your comics work with Soupy 
and uh, Shade the Changing Girl and uh, Shade the Changing Woman is you're really interested in transformation and identity as it pertains to young women or teenage women. What started that fascination for you? Well, I think I, because I was a teenage girl, yeah. I think probably that was like step one. But um, I think it's more the transformation part that I'm really interested in is that one of the things that I love about writing young adult fiction or writing young people is that when you're a teenager, you're really emerging. You're trying to figure out what kind of a human being are you going to be? Are you going to be a villain? Are you going to be a hero? What are you going to be? And at that time in life, everything is raw, right? It's the first time you fall in love, the first time that you are betrayed, the first time that you hate. The, everything is just, you're like walking around with no skin on. And I think for a writer, that's a very, very fertile time to sort of, it's a fertile ground to mine. You know, it's like right. there's lots of gold in that, in those hills. So, um, so I think that's what I'm really, really interested in. And then, of course, being a lady, um, I'm interested in sort of the female experience, you know, and what that means. And I always wanted, you know, growing up in the 80s and like having all these amazing inspirational movies and comics out, but they were all boys and they were all boy adventures. And um, so I think I just write the things that I wanted and needed when I was a girl. Right. And with, with Shane the Changing Girl and now Shade the Changing Woman, mm -hmm. it's very literal. I mean, like... Like, she's literally an alien inhabiting a teenage girl. So it's sort of like, you know, Shade's own transformation and experience of Earth is sort of likened to sort of a kind of puberty. Yeah, absolutely. I think Marley Zarconi and I, the artist, we talk about that a lot, about how, you know, a lot of times when we're teenagers, we feel like aliens, right? Hair is sprouting out, places we don't understand. We've got eruptions <laughs> coming every which way but loose, you know, uh, uh, our, our hormones and uh, emotional fluctuations are happening. And, uh, you you know, it's sort of you're kind of this wild thing that you can't control. And um, and we sort of imagine that that's what being an alien is like, because you feel like an alien when you're a teenager. Right. Right. And so Shade the Changing Man was really influential when it was at Vertigo and, and that sort of thing. So when you got involved with uh, Gerard Way's Young Animal imprint and uh, his whole thing at DC Comics, what attracted you to the character and how did you get into uh, Shade? the changing girl and woman? Well, um, Shelley Bond, who uh, had brought me into comics to begin with, with the Plain Janes uh, okay. back during the Minx line, like 12 years ago, she called me and was like, hey, I have this project. I think that it marries two of your favorite things, outer space and teenage girls. And uh, she was like, you know, do you want to pitch for it? And so I was like, yes, absolutely. And I just, I just knew I had to write it because it was just everything that I wanted. And um, so Gerard just had the line, alien possesses body of 16-year-old bully, 16-year-old girl bully. Mm -hmm. And um, that was it. And I just went. So that's how I got in. Shelly brought me in. I met with Gerard and uh, we talked about it. And, uh, you know, Gerard and I uh, like just got along immediately because he's such a creative genre bending kind of person as well. And so it was sort of like we recognized each other like, oh, my brother, you know. Right. And he also has that musical background, yeah. which you also have. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So we just we always talk about that because I talk about writing comics as being very similar to being in a rock band, like because you're jamming and you have to collaborate and you have to let go of things and not be precious about your work in order to make the the song or the work better um, you have to work as a group and Gerard and I talk about that 
all the time about how making comics is like being in a band. That's awesome. When Shelly originally brought you into comics uh, 12 years ago, mm -hmm. what place were you at? Like, obviously, you've expressed in your work that you were like a geek girl mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Yep. So was comics always an aspiration for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I loved comics so much. And when I read, I think it was when I was dating that guy that I met from the Star Wars line in like 1999 or 2000, um, I read a book by Ed Brubaker called The Dead Enders. And I looked at it and I was like, this is a young adult book. And that's what I was aspiring to do. I was aspiring to be a young adult writer, but I'd always loved comics. Um, and so, but when I read The Dead Enders, I was like, that's what I want to do. I can do that. And then I would actually, it it was like Alta Vista at the time. It wasn't like Google. Google didn't exist. But I Alta Vista'd Vertigo Comics because I'd loved Vertigo when I was in college, you know, years, like 10 years previous. And I was like, you know, how do you submit to, how do you become a comic book writer? And I couldn't figure it out. So I was like, well, I guess this is a thing I really want to do. And I guess I'm not, I don't know how to do it. I don't know anybody who writes comics. I don't draw comics. All the things were for submitting art. So I was like, well, I guess that's not going to happen. And then, and then Shelly was looking for young adult authors who may want to write comics. And somebody had handed her my first novel, Boy Proof, which is about a girl who's obsessed with um, post-apocalyptic science fiction films and Vertigo comics. And Shelly read that. And I have a very lean style writing, um, my prose is very, it's just action and dialogue. I don't do a lot of description. And so she was like, I think Cecil could write comics. And so she called me and was like, hi, my name is Shelly Bond. I'm at Vertigo Comics. And I'm wondering, I was like, yes, 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 wow. yes. So right <laughs> at the time. Alta Vista you. Yeah. You know? So right at the time you're trying to break into comics, you just get this random call. It was actually like seven years later. Okay. But yeah, it was a random call seven years later, you know, and she was like, I'm wondering if you might be interested. Do you have any idea? I was like, I've got 12, 12 ideas. That's a really uh, great tip for people who want to like break in, because if you already have stuff published, mm -hmm. that's like the greatest calling it card the, in the yeah, world. It was absolutely. I mean, you know, and I, I had exactly what she was looking for. She was looking for a young adult author who had a young adult voice, who wrote prose because they were doing graphic novels so this was the first wave of trying to get into the bookstores mm -hmm. for you know for young people's graphic novels and she wanted someone who liked comics and you know like and my book was about a girl who liked vertigo comics you right. know so it was right. like a no-brainer yeah it's like it's a very specific imprint in an already specific yeah. hobby <laughs> yeah and then the same thing is like i continued to write my books you know that the the minx line was 12 years ago i continued to write my books and then you know, I mean, I pitched to Shelly and nothing ever happened again. And, you know, I did maybe one short story with her for um, the Vertigo s s sound effects anthology that they had oh, and yeah, like yeah, yeah. the Vertigo ghosts thing. You know, I did little things, but I'd always wanted to do an ongoing and I'd never it had never worked out for mm -hmm. me. But then once again, you know, just kept doing my work. And then, you know, when teenage girl and space alien came together Shelly was like I know who to call and honestly like young animal I guess for a lot of people who remember vertigo is like the new sort of vertigo line in a lot in a lot of ways yeah right? I think it, I think the spirit of it like uh, the spirit of vertigo really uh, is sort of in the DNA of young animal for yeah, sure yeah absolutely so as a young adult author were you interested in, in doing that just because of the transformation and the experience of uh, that kind of thing and being a teenager like we were talking about before? Or I think the 
first thing, like Boy Proof is a book about a nerdy girl, right. a girl who's a nerd. Mm-hmm. And a lot of books when I was growing up, if there was a nerd in the story, it was the sidekick. It was the, you know, the secondary character, right. or like the quirky best friend or whatever. And I felt like I wanted to be the hero. I wanted the nerdy girl to be the the, the hero. And I wanted all of her friends to be you know, dorks as well. And so um, so I just wrote that book because that was the book that I wanted and that was the book that I didn't see. And um, Boy Proof was one of the first that had sort of nerds front and center and it wasn't that they were ostracized or, you know, like there was a problem because they were a nerd. It was just like they just happened to be nerds. And so it was more that. And I think when you're writing young adult, I don't really think about what I'm writing for. I just write a story and it just happens that they are mostly young adult right now. That doesn't mean that I mean, I, do, I have plenty of short stories that are adult science fiction stories or my opera is not young adult, you know, maybe one day I'll write a play and that won't probably be young adult. You right. know, it's like, I think it's just about voice and form and what sort of comes naturally at the time. I do want to talk about voice because Shelley was attracted to the fact that you could write from a young adult voice. Is it harder to do that as you get older? Like not everybody can write a young adult voice. What does it take to be able to maintain that youthfulness. I actually think that, I mean, the thing that changes is the technology, right? It's not so much the experience of being a teenager because once you've been a teenager, you know what that's like. And then sadly, as we grow older, it's not like being in high school ever goes away. That's true. I mean, there's like the cool group and the not cool group. I mean, even if you're in an office, right? It's like, there's the cool lunch table and the not cool lunch table. and like, you know, or in comics or in, you know, young adult literature or in, uh, you know, music or I mean, every scene has its sort of hierarchies. Right. And that's what high school is like. That's that, true. So I feel like those feelings are constantly getting stirred up in me. And it's just a matter of sort of adjusting. I will say that I'm. I am getting more interested in telling um, sort of different kinds of stories, you know, like I've got sort of a bee in my bonnet now about this historical thing that would take place in the 1600s. And, you know, it's like, but it still would be a 16 year old girl, you know, or like I'm really into outer space. And, uh, you know, so like I have ideas about like, you know, doing like more deep space opera, but like it would probably be 16 year old girl. Do you find like I know that a lot of adults, one of the reasons that they struggle with the whole young adult thing is because they get perspective on, you know, what happened to them as teenagers and they sort of can't go back to that without analyzing it in retrospect from the position of an adult. Do you mean them reading young adults? Yeah, like in terms of like, I can't write about myself as a teenager because... I'll know where I like. I know where I went wrong as an adult now. Kind I think of it's thing. O- actually the opposite. Okay. I, what we say in the in the in the young people's literature biz okay. is wherever you had your trauma and your problems is the voice that you're most natural in. Ooh. So I was very happy and had relatively no issues when I was in middle school. So I don't write middle grade. I don't write for like eight to 12 year olds. I was not tortured. I was not bullied. I had great friends. I'm still friends with all my friends from junior high school. Like, so 
That for me isn't a problem, but high school. Tell me about that. Like, Like, what happened? It was just like I was very small. So when I got to my senior year, uh, all of my friends were super cool. Like they all like got boobs and like you know looked like women, and um and they started going to clubs and bars and like sort of sneaking in with fake IDs because the drinking age was only eighteen at the time. Right. Or it had just turned nineteen in the states, and so. But if I went with them, I looked like I was twelve, even though I was seventeen, eighteen. You know, and so I would always get us carded. I would always get us kicked out. So they stopped hanging out with me because I was too small and I was too childlike. And, you know, and so that was a big thing. And also I had a lot of emotions and I was very emotional. It was just like this like huge emotional thing. And I didn't know how to manage my emotions yet because I didn't have the sophistication and the experience and the wisdom. And so everything was very dramatic. And I think I was just, it was hard. It was just really hard. Was it hard being into geeky things? Because like back then we weren't in the current like hip comic renaissance that we're in now, thanks to the movies. You know, I went to the high school performing arts, which if you ever saw the movie fame that came out. Yeah. So that was my high school. And I have to honestly say that I had no problems with anybody like think everybody was so weird at my high school because everybody was the weirdest person from their high school. And then we all went to this one high school. So nobody cared that I liked, you know, or that I read the original Planet of the Apes book before (laughs) I saw the movie. Like they didn't care that I played Dungeons and Dragons. Like nobody cared. They didn't play with me, but like, you know, but yeah, I didn't have any, any troubles with that. Even in, in middle school, I remember there was, there was a moment where when I was younger, I used to hide all of my geeky stuff in my brother's room. So I had a a section of his bookshelf Mm -hmm. that were my books and my comics. And because I didn't want my girlfriends who were having my sleepovers to know that I liked playing D&D or Star Frontiers or, you know, Champions or whatever. I didn't want them to know. And then one day... I remember I was with my friend Kim and she was I said something about Star Wars and she was like, oh, yeah, well, that's your thing. You're a geek. You're like you're a nerd. And I was like, oh, that's my thing. And then it was fine. Yeah. Identity is a cool thing to find. Yeah. And then like all the books came back in my room and it was just like, oh, yeah, she likes that. And they all supported me. And even though they weren't into it, it was fine. And I had a different friend at school that I went to. Um comic book conventions with starting when I was 11 and um, it was not a big deal. Was it hard to relate to other geek boys as a geek girl? No. I mean, I feel like I just, it, I think the sad thing was that most of the time when I talked to them, I was the only one, yeah. you know, that was the problem, you know? Mm. And you didn't get like geek credit or anything or anything like that in terms of like walking into comic shops and people trying to like test you and that sort of stuff. Oh, you know, I'm sure that I did, but I think I've probably blocked it out or I didn't care, you know, because the same thing would happen when you go into an indie rock record store, you know, like, (laughs) you know, you go into an indie rock record store and like, you know, I'd always be like, oh, no, if I pick the wrong seven inch out, then the cashier will like roll their eyes at like what I'm buying. It was kind of the same thing. So I just sort of assumed that in every single subculture, someone's going to roll their eyes. Yeah, totally. Tell me a little bit, because one of the sort of aspects of your 
of your work that I really like is is you sort of deal with like tough issues like in your short story for Planned Parenthood which uh-huh. is nominated for the Eisner and then in Soupy Leaves Home she's following in a history of women disguising themselves as men to escape bad situations mm-hmm. and become men because that's like their only option do yeah. what the boys are allowed to do in this case she becomes a hobo and rides the rails and finds freedom through that so there's sort of like a, I, I don't want to say like activist thing, but you, you tackle some tough things that are right in line with things like the Me Too movement yep. and, and that kind of thing. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that uh, I think art is political, so I, I would not even back away from the word activist. I would definitely okay. say that there is a thread through all of my work that is very, you know, sort of pro doing stuff, you know, Um, and being engaged in the world, you know, and being engaged in the world for good, you know, and and not for things that are that are evil. Yeah, Soupy leaves home. You know, Soupy is is a girl who dresses up as a boy and rides the rails. She doesn't dress up as a boy because she wants to become a boy. It's that becoming a boy is the only way that she can be the woman that she wants to be. Yeah, yeah. it's like, well, safety, because Mm -hmm. like you couldn't really ride the rail. Many, many women rode the rails. You know, in the 30s during the Great Depression, children as well, but all the girls dressed up as boys because it was just safer for them to be on the road by themselves. But with Soupy, she leaves home because she wants to read and she wants to go to college and she wants to get an education. And, you know, that was a time where if you were a woman, if you had your hair bobbed, that was considered the most scandalous thing in the world. Like, I mean, you know, um, 1932 is only 10 years, um, you know, from women having the vote. So it was a very, very different, um, time in and, the States. And the older women that you look up to are sort of on the side of the men. At exactly. least in this case, her grandmother is very much like, listen to your father. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. Because because that was the tradition, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, Soupy is trying to figure out how to become a modern woman in a world where being a modern woman doesn't exist. So, the only way that she can do that is to literally become a man and figure out who she is and get that strength to then become the woman that she wants to be. Right. That's amazing. Ethel Byrne is the same thing. Ethel is an amazing, amazing woman, right? Um, She started a Planned Parenthood birth control clinic with her sister, and uh, she was the real radical activist. But, you know, she was the second daughter, so she wasn't, she couldn't go to college. So her sister got to go to college, but she didn't. And so she had a lot of things that were sort of heaped onto her because of her position as a woman. And um, and Ethel was very radical and fought. And when she got arrested because of this birth control clinic that she did, she decided she wasn't going to eat, and she was going to, you know, not work in this work camp. And um, it was such big news that it actually pushed the suffragettes off the front page of the paper. And so Ethel was like dominating, you know, her hunger strike. But her sister, who is the face of Planned Parenthood, I'm going to not say her name because she gets all the attention. And this is about Ethel. Right. Her sister actually cut a deal with the, the state of New York that Ethel could be released as long as she never did any activism for birth control ever again in her life, wow. which is a tragedy. It is. It's a super tragedy. And and she lived in the shadow of her sister. And Ethel, I think, probably had a, a lot of problems and, like, you know, was a bit messed up because she was born in the wrong time. She was born in a time where she couldn't be 
she couldn't thrive and bloom the way that she wanted to because she had no control over her body, because she had no control. She couldn't vote. You know, I mean, this was before the vote. And, you know, then you think about when it comes to comics and her legacy, I mean, her legacy being Olive Byrne, who is the inspiration for Wonder Woman. I mean, it's just like, boom, you know, it's like so amazingly intense. Yeah, Yeah. it's such a crazy, like, web and tree. Yeah. You know, once you think about it. Yeah, and it was a pleasure to write that because that is about activism and it's about ownership over bodies, you know, and um, I think, you know, that's a very, very important thing. And um, and I feel like women right now, especially in the States, we're kind of <laughs> dealing with some of those issues again, you know, with the current administration. Yeah, it seems like, you know, those issues don't go away. I mean, maybe we're dealing with them to a lesser extent, mm-hmm. arguably. It's not as extreme as it was. Yeah, I think people like people now, when you're talking about birth control, when Ethel was doing it, that was shocking. You know, it was like shocking. But now people use birth control and it's like we talk about it and, you know, it's like it's not as sort of like, what are you saying? Like, you know. But I would say that some stuff is a little bit more sinister because it's more subtle. Yeah. And because it's a little more now underground yeah. now, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, now because it's like we're talking about it, but then we're also taking things away at the right. same time, right? Which is different when everything was just not spoken about. And people are presenting as you know feminist yeah. or like on the side of oh, women, God, but then yeah. behind closed doors, yeah. they're oh God. crazy and yeah, they're crazy. like <laughs> like the <laughs> like the attorney general of New of New York and, and that yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. right? It's like there's a lot crazy. of hypocrisy, it's a lot of hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's really sad because what I I think is that the more people that come to the table and the more people that are like hanging out at the table, like if you're talking about diversity and you're talking about, you know, women, like just in the world, like it's better for everyone. So, you know, everything's dumb. Right. We should go back a bit because we did kind (laughs) of mention the line uh, that you were in for the Phantom Menace. Yeah, Star Wars. Uh, Cecil worked with one of our past guests, Hope Nicholson and her publishing company, uh, Bedside Press, on uh, Secret Loves of Geek Girls 2. I think it's Secret Loves of Geeks. And uh, she wrote a story about falling in love with a boy while she was in the first Star Wars line for The Phantom Menace at Grauman's Chinese Theater. And this was back when, like, Star Wars was coming back. And, like, these were, like, the original people who, like, line up for charity. And I think they still do it. Yeah, they still do. Yeah. So... Tell me a little bit about that, because that seems to be like uh, an awakening for you. But it almost like mirrored the experience of lining up for the movie. It was interesting. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I am a geek and I love Star Wars. And Star Wars is probably the reason why I became a writer, because I love Star Wars. So when I found out that there was going to be a new movie, I was I couldn't even contain my excitement. And when I found out that there was going to be a line waiting in line for Star Wars, I was like, well, I'm clearly going to do this. So I lived in a tent for six weeks on Hollywood Boulevard, (laughs) uh, which is a long time. And it was amazing and terrible and wonderful and weird and loving and heartbreaking and, you know, just everything that you could possibly imagine when a community springs up on a sidewalk (laughs) during a very, very strange thing. And all of America is laughing at you because you have to remember Star Wars was not cool at the time. No, You know, it was coming back, but it was like mainstream geekery had not hit yet. And Star Wars in particular was dormant for so long. Yeah, for so long. So, um, So this was like, I mean, I remember there were like about... 
10 people who actually slept there every night. And then there were like a bunch of people that would come during the day. We had this whole system. You would sign in, sign out. And I remember this one night. Um, I mean, everybody was making all the late night people like Jay Leno and like, you know, whoever was on the air. Like everybody was Letterman. making. Yeah, Letterman. They were all making fun of us. Like all making they'd send their camera crews they would like come with yoda hats and they'd be like to try to steal our place in line like they just like they were like foxtrot had a cartoon about like the dumb people waiting in line for i mean it was we were being laughed at right. by mm-hmm. all of america and it was amazing though but because it was this weird sort of Coming together of people, we raised a lot of money for the Starlight Children's Foundation, and this beautiful community came, but then the movie was not very good, and it was very sad, and I kind of felt like, you know, but the nice thing about it for me was that the whole time that I was there, I was falling in love with this guy, and who's a great guy, you know, and right. and, um, and he does amazing things, and and it was sort of like this extra wonderful thing, right. but... I think that being on the line with him made me think that it was more intense than it actually was. And right. so regardless of the fact that we that we ended up dating for almost two years, like it was it, I don't think that it was ever going to be a good match because it could never it could like the bubble of um, adventure time that we were on during those six weeks. Could it? you can't recreate that. It was born out of intensity, born out of intensity. Yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah. Interesting. But he's an amazing guy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because at the end of it, uh, you're sort of you're sort of wistful about, about the relationship yeah. and that sort of thing. So then I I read it and I wondered like, is he gonna see this? Like, did he ever contact you? Or I mean, anything? we're we're friends on Facebook. Okay, cool. And I did I posted that the thing came out and like you know and wrote like, you know, hey, you know, wrote a thing about falling in love on the Star Wars line. And then in the comments, I you know tagged him because right. I didn't want to tag him in the thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't name him. You don't out people. Yeah, yeah, I didn't name him in the essay, even though everybody who knows me and him knows who it is. Right. And he just like commented back and was like, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a very loving essay and I don't think that it says anything other than this was a wonderful experience. And I totally loved him with all my heart and I still love him as a human. And so, you know, it's like, I don't think I could have written it if I was going to be mad or bitter or anything like that. Well, yeah. Well, memoir though is a tricky thing because sometimes like I'm going through it right now. I have to, I have to write something mm-hmm. for a literary agent. And sometimes you think that things are innocent, whatever, but right. people get mad because they don't get to tell their side of an experience. Right. So sometimes you think things are innocent and then, and then they come back to you. And yeah, go, oh. I think the rule of thumb that I had for that essay was do no harm. Okay. You know, and like that, like, you know, maybe it might, maybe he might be like, oh, you know, but at the same time, like, I think that I went into that essay with love. Right. And I think as long as you go into a thing with love and care, then it's like you, you've no, it, it even happens in fiction. Sometimes I write my books and people are like, Oh, I know that was about me. Right. And I'm like, dude, that was not about yeah. you. That was about someone else. Yeah. But they 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 get mad and they think, and I'm like, okay, yeah, it was about you. It's and like I'm sorry. The song. Yeah. So you know, yeah, you never you never know how something's going to land on someone. It's more about them than it is about you. Right. So you, you have you to can, yeah. understand that. Yeah. 
Cool. That's awesome. I do want to touch on your operas because mm-hmm. the opera that's here right now for one more night is not even your first, uh, you know, libretto that you've ever written. Mm-hmm. Like you've also done another opera that was also more inspired by comics and, and things like that and actually used a lot of local artists like mm-hmm. uh, Cameron Stewart and Mike Cho and Scott Hepburn, people who've been on this podcast, Scott yeah. Hepburn in particular. So I wanted to to sort of get into like how did you get into doing an opera like I don't even my mind doesn't even go there when I'm thinking about what I want to do so my dad is friends with this woman who's the artistic director of this contemporary classical music company in Montreal called ECM plus okay and um, what Véronique Lacroix, the artistic director, does is she often puts together, the reason why it's called Plus is because it's um, contemporary music plus. So she puts together painters and composers, choreographers and composers, uh, writers and composers, and commissions new short works, uh, collaborative works, you know, and then sort of puts on a show. And um, my dad, being a, you know, proud dad, like, you know, has bought her all of my young adult novels and, you know, and everything, all my comic books. And um, and so she asked me, hey, you know, it strikes me you're a professional writer. I put together writers and composers. Would you like to do anything? And I had this idea. I said, yes, I'd like to write an opera and I'd like it to be a comic book opera. And I liked the idea of trying to recreate the uh, feeling of going through a stack of comic books. So the first opera, Les Aventures de Madame Merveille, was four movements and it was a superhero comic, a kids comic, a romance comic, and a science fiction comic. And it moved from one genre to the other uh, visually, and that's why we had the four different artists. Um, Pascal Girard was the other, the yeah. fourth artist. And the, there were projections, because, you know, a contemporary music company, a lot of people, they don't have a lot of money, It's you can't do a big set, it's not like doing La Boheme at like, you know, the big opera houses or whatever. So it was a way of sort of blending sort of this visual uh, thing with, um, you know, the sort of act of the singers acting in front of this screen where these comics were projected. So that was my idea because I also, a lot of times when you go to an opera, they have super titles because, you know, something is in French or in Italian or German. And so they have super titles that you can follow the story along. And to me, that always looked like captions in a, in a comic book. Yeah. I always think about it in terms of like, adapting for people with disabilities like mm-hmm. people who are hard of hearing and that sort of thing yeah exactly it's like people yeah. who are hard of reading German or yeah. understanding German <laughs> yeah, or whatever exactly. and so <laughs> you know and also opera is super complicated you're like I don't even know who that guy is right. why is he singing about that what is he singing about why does it just keep going on right. you need a little help yeah you know? exactly so um, so that was my initial idea and so then with Hockey Noir which is the new one I kind of pushed that idea so if you saw Madame Merveille you know, the comics were integrated and stuff, but it was sort of a first first level thing. With Hockey Noir, it's the same idea of having a graphic opera, but really the it's like a, a living sequential story that's happening while you're seeing the the singers pose in the same sort of Movement, so it's not animated. Although there there are some animated features, but it's not like a cartoon. Right. It's a, a panel, you know, um, that then becomes another panel. That then becomes another panel. But sometimes there's like they have like the hockey, you know, people kind of skating or a puck going across. But um, so the idea was to sort of really sort of take it to that next level and have it become a sort of three D, three D graphic 
opera. I mean, it's not. It's. I don't even know if there's a term for what I'm, what we're trying. You right. know, but it works really well because, like I said, opera is so difficult to understand, even when you do have the super titles. That having this sort of extra level of a visual storytelling aspect to the opera helps. Yeah, you know where you are. You know where you are. Yeah. You know how to, because we're used to sort of reading visually that, like you know, so it's like you've got sort, and then it still has all the text on it and stuff like. That. So it's an idea that I'm really interested in pursuing, and um, I think it's becoming more sophisticated. I did, for Hockey Noir, put out a call for comic book artists, and I got a bunch who are amazing, but Kimberlyn Porter, who is the artist that I work with, um, I found her on Twitter. Uh, she like said, hey, I saw your call. I don't do comics, but um, I just graduated from Sheridan, which is a college here yeah. in Toronto, and I did my thesis on film noir posters. And I looked at her resume, and it was a three-act story told in posters. So it was basically like a sequential comic you know what I mean? Like a graphic story. Right, that's amazing. Um, and it was in the film noir style, exactly what I was looking for. And so, you know, I was like, well, this is what I'm looking for. And she did tell a story graphically, you know, sequentially. So, um, so yeah, so it's just sort of happenstance that she's not a comic book person or yet. I'm sure she'll, right. she's she so be talented. Super close, yeah. yeah um, but it's really beautiful to look at her artist stunning. So who taught you how to write an opera? Like, do you have to know like a technique or like what I happens? Know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, basically I'm just lucky. I don't know how other people write operas. I write with the same composer. Right, Andre okay. Rishtik. We did the first opera together. We did this one together. We'll probably do another one together. We have a good way of working. I don't know that any. I don't know that anybody else would, you know, do it the way that we do. I, I know that there are people that go and they train, but it's the same thing with comics. Nobody taught me how to write comics right. either. I write it my way, and I write it my way with the artists that I work with, and that would look completely different if it was somebody else. You know, like when I write Shade with Marley, I do full script. But basically, I'm just like, yeah, do whatever you want, you know, because I know that if I say five panels, Marley's going to like make Shade walk into her own mouth. And, you know, that's panel one and panel yeah, two. Yeah, it's so, so out know. there with the like stuff that's happening yeah. and the animals and the crazy stuff yeah. that's going on. I don't know if like the other people in the comic can see that or if it's just happening yeah. in her mind. Yeah. So you're like the complete opposite of like the Alan Moore style of like so much detail in every, every panel. You're just going like hog wild kind of Yeah, thing. I go hog wild and, um, you know, I, I look at it as like, uh, I look at my comic scripts as a scaffolding and my job is to inspire the artists to do their best work. I have to take care of the story. They have to take care of the art. And so I take care of them making sure that they understand the story. So I, I do it a lot of different ways. So um, first of all, I will just like to give a shout out to Jim Rugg, who was the first person that I worked with. And when I was doing Plain Janes, I'd never written a comic book before. And I felt very uh, boxed in by the panels. I didn't know how to move to the next panel. I, I knew how to read comics, but I didn't know how to write them. And one day I called Jim up crying. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to get to the next scene. I don't know how to get to the next pa uh, next movement. How do I, you know, like there were too many choices. Yeah. And Jim just said, Cecil, I'm your swim buddy. You just write whatever crazy shit you want on the page and I will figure it out. Right. And I was like, oh. So then I just started writing my scripts. Like, I, even though I was doing full, I'd be like, dear Jim. <laughs> like, <laughs> and they're just love letters to the artist. And yeah. that's how I think of them. I think okay. of them as love letters. With Soupy... 
and with You're the Beast, so Soupy was with Jose Pimenta and You're the Beast was with Nate Powell, um, I did open script. So I just wrote action and dialogue and then let them break it down the way that they wanted to. Okay, yeah. Because that's, that's the trouble that like some new writers always get into is like they have all these ideas, they have this vision, but they don't realize how many panels they can fit on a page mm -hmm. and things get a little bogged down and there's sort of a traffic jam as you're trying to like fit in all the ideas in these yeah. panels, right? Yeah, it's really interesting because especially with a monthly comic, I found that I never have enough pages and I have too many pages at exactly the same time. Right. You know, it's like, I always like, like when I first start out, I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to make this 20 or 22 pages? And then when I get to like 22 pages, I'm like, I need three more pages. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, it's like this very intense, you have both too much and too little at the same time. But, um. Yeah, I one thing that um, when I first starting was starting out as well was um, you know Shelley was editing Fables at the time, right. and um, uh, Bill Willingham let me look at his scripts, and so I got to see the scripts uh, and pencils and um, you know inks and lettering, so that I could understand what the whole process looked like. And then another person who really helped me was um, Pia Guerrera. Um, oh, yeah. Pia um, was working on the Why the Last Man at the time. I'd met her at Comic Con. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, and she sent me like two Y scripts so that I could see sort of a different way that two different people did it. But one thing that I learned from Bill Willingham was his advice to me when I asked him for advice was, um, don't do more than five panels on a page. So I, that's always my, if I, if I go over five panels, I'm like, oh, yeah, you, you know, you know, there's a little, you, it's you're squashed. in trouble. It feels bit. squashed. Yeah. Although I will say that sometimes with shade, I will go to like seven panels or eight panels because I know that Marley's going to do some, she's not looking at them as panels. Mm -hmm. She's looking at them as a scaffolding for what the idea on that page needs to be. So she might make it like a little tiny thing in the corner or like, you know, shade jumping off of something. And it, like, there are ways that she takes care of that panel problem I have if I go over five panels um, because I know that she's going to, she's going to push the form in right. some way. And the other thing with comics too is like, there's so much lore, especially when you're working with like one of the big two companies. Mm -hmm. uh, you are doing like a reinterpretation of a reinterpretation mm -hmm. of a classic character uh, in Shade the Changing Girl and now Shade the Changing mm -hmm. Woman. So how much did you go back to research uh, the Vertigo Shade the Changing Man and then the prior Ditko Shade the Changing Man and that sort of thing? Well, as soon as I got, as soon as I got the job, I read all of I mean I was familiar with shade like I shade hadn't been my favorite when I was like right. you know in my vertigo stage but um but it was certainly I'd read an issue or two and thought it was crazy and like you know whatever uh, nice coat you know yeah, um, exactly. and then as soon as I got the gig I bought the Ditko shade. It's only nine issues, eight issues, nine issues. And, um, and, and then I ordered online I ordered all 76 I think of shade the changing man and I read the oh, entire thing Wow. and what I wanted to do was I wanted to pull from both of them elements that I thought were the core and the heart, um, but make it into me and Marley's own uh, thing. So, um, so yeah. So if you if you read Shade the Changing Man, then I think you'll you, there's clever nods to what Milligan did, but I'm trying to make it much more different than him. Like Milligan's Shade is wonderful and crazy and 
astounding, but it's also very dark and very cruel and mm-hmm. very bloody mm-hmm. at times. And so that's why I sort of was like, okay, that's he staked out that territory. I'm going to stake out the heart. Like, yeah. that's the that's where I'm going to go. Is it difficult writing a mean girl? Oh, yeah, Megan, she's the worst. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. It's yeah. really hard because she's so awful. Right. Like, I hate her. <laughs> you know? Totally. And sometimes I'm like, like, in Shade the Changing Woman, I don't know if, you've, if you're up to that, but, you know, something happens and they're... <laughs> Yeah. Somewhere. It's someone almost, has returned. It's almost like the, someone kills someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's almost like the, the alien is a better per, is a better person. Well, I think when you're writing the alien, you mean Loma or the alien, you mean Megan? Like Loma, like because oh, she's yeah. inhabiting Even her body. Even though she's a terrible but you're, person. But yeah. you're cheering for yeah. this person who... who Initially, did not treat people well. Yeah, yeah. You're like, you're like, what's going on? Yeah. Like, this person's like, in a like, you're you're sympathetic to Megan yeah. first because you, I don't want to give anything away, but like, she's in a vulnerable state, and yeah. you're like, oh, this alien is taking over her body. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. But over the course of the comic, you're on the alien side. You're on yeah. you're on Loma's side. Yeah, yeah and lo- I think one of the interesting things is that Loma. Is, has made bad choices and is kind of mean in her own way, is a mean bird in her own way. But then it goes back to what we were talking about, transformation and growth, you know? Right. like So that's like the, you know, you can't become a... It, it's boring as a writer if you write... Like, I wrote a book called The Queen of Cool once. Right. And um, somebody, a, a parent, wrote me a letter and was like, I read this book and I shut it after page 15 because she's smoking pot and like, you know, making out with her boyfriend and this is not cool. Why would you call your book The Queen of Cool if it wasn't cool? And I wrote the woman back and I was like, well, you can't become cool if you're just cool, it can't just be you're cool and then you're still cool and then you're still cool. Like drama has to have an up and down. Well, and there's an ironic quality to that because it's like you think you're cool. Exactly. You think you're cool, but yeah. that you don't know what real cool is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that someone, a character has to have somewhere to go, mm-hmm. you know, and that it can't just be one note the whole time. And so it's the same thing with, you know, with Loma, you know, is that Loma, she can't, she can't start out as, you know, knowing everything. Right. And in that sort of dual role, it's like it's like one character grows and the other doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Or do they? Or we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been amazing. Um, what do you want to leave us with? I know that the opera is only happening for these two nights, so by the time this comes out, people will have missed it, unfortunately. But is it going on tour? Are you planning on having any other performances? Well, we are going to be in Belgium okay. in uh, in um, November and December for two dates, um, and hopefully we'll go other places. But yeah, keep an eye out for it. Um, I have a new novel out that just came out, Don't Cosplay With My Heart. It's about a nerdy girl. Uh, it's about a girl who starts a cosplay club at at her high school. And it takes place over four um, Comic-Cons. Uh, it's all about like being a geek girl. <laughs> did you ever cosplay? I did when I first started, when I was 11. Yeah, I um, I did Princess Leia and I did Jessica Six from Logan's Run. Nice. <laughs> those, were my, those were my two... 
And yeah. uh, and I did like a Star, Star Trek, like, you know, Yeoman Rand. That's awesome. Yeah. So how can people follow your work on social media? What are your websites? How yeah. can people MissCecil.com. And I'm at MissCecil over on uh, on the Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm Cecil Seaskull, which is my old punk name. Um, and yeah. Are your records still available? Yeah. If you have Spotify, they're on Spotify. Um, and they're also on iTunes and wherever you can buy music. It's uh, Nerdy Girl or Cecil Seaskull. Nice. Well, we'll be on the lookout for more operas, more comics, more transformations. This has been a great conversation. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.